If you will, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll continue in this series on 1 Thessalonians. And today we're going to be talking about the Word of God as it's come from Paul to the missions in which he is entrusted by the Lord. Let's all pray. Dear God, I pray that you would, Lord, use your word today, Father, to convict, Lord, to exhort, Father, to draw us to holiness and walking in it in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that if there are those this morning in the congregation that Lord, do not know you. Father, I pray that you would use your word today, Lord, to save them soundly. Lord, I pray that you would be with my preaching, Lord, that I would rightly divide the word. And I pray that you would be with our hearing, Lord, to effectively hear the words that you have written and have sent for us to look at today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a little bit of a recap of where we've been. We learned about Paul's journeys with several of his cohorts, right? Namely, Silas is traveling with him, Timothy, and Luke at points. So as they go through the Mediterranean, on this second missionary journey, Paul is now camped out at Corinth for about 18 months. And that is where he writes this letter to the church at Thessalonica. And as we've learned, Paul laid out a complete defense of his ministry because as we talked about last week, the character of the preacher was in question and attacked. And his mission and his means and his motivations were all under attack constantly for those that would detract from the gospel, from those that are even enticed by Satan through various motivations to keep him from preaching the word. As we also talked about, Paul is, Paul compares himself to both a loving mother and a loving father in regards to those that he ministers to. These people become endeared to Paul because they are so encouraged, the brothers are so encouraged that they have seen the word of God be effective as it is shared to these various new churches, some of which began in the synagogue as he divided the gospel to Jews who did not know who Christ is. So he continues to do so and thanking God for them. That's what he says in verse 13. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, 
which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word, the mere world, excuse me, not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. We are so blessed to be able to carry a Bible with us to church, multiple ones if we want, and even more if we have apps on our phone. We have 32 different versions, right, that we can look at that are, that we can absorb the word of God. So when we think about the word of God, that's, that's really the central theme today, if you will, of this entire message that runs through each section of what I'm going to talk about. The word of God is not just a thing, right? The word of God is also a person. Um, then we're going to talk about how is the word of God received? What impact did it have on the Thessalonians? What impact does it have on us? The word of God, firstly, is personified in Jesus. The Bible itself is the narrative of Jesus from start to finish. When we look at this passage that's very familiar to us, but bears repeating as we practice reminders, brother, of God's grace and deliverance. John 1, 1 through 5, if you want to turn there, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. So John the, the beloved disciple of Christ calls Jesus the Word. The Word made manifest in his incarnation. The promises of Christ. John 1.14 continues to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's word is personified in Jesus as the word of God walking around, right? The one that was prophesied throughout all the entire Old Testament the prophets spoke about him. Moses spoke about him. Even Genesis talks about the need of a savior and starts to outline his attributes. 
So the culmination of the entirety of time as we know it all points towards Jesus in the future or points back to him. And by the way, I am going to keep as long as I die the designations of time, B.C. and A.D., because there is a person that split our Western time, okay, into two eras, <laughs> and I'm going to keep it that way. Um, he is the very person of God. Since Jesus was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning, the Bible's narrative is the narrative of Jesus. And just as God speaks and creates a universe out of nothing, his spoken word changes the hearts of men and women and regenerates them into a new creation. If, a, if the Lord can create atoms and matter out of nothing, it is again nothing for him to regenerate us with his living word. The word of God is also a message. So you can look at the Bible as the very actual words of God. So if we put it in the context of creation, just a few words of the Lord begin this entire universe. And so what do a few words do for us today? The message of the gospel is God's means, God's words of the gospel and preaching of that gospel are the means that he uses to convey um, his work his will and saves us through that preaching of his word. So Paul's proclamation of the word of God is the proclamation of Jesus gospel. So when he says to the Thessalonians, you receive the word of God and paraphrase, we are so glad about that. We are so excited about that. We couldn't be more joyful about that because all of the things that we have gone through as a church, the active persecution by even the Roman government, different groups of Jewish people, different groups of Gentile people, all coming against Paul and this message. And he is so happy about receiving or them receiving that word. So I wanted to look back um, on to a parable to talk about how is this word received and how is it, as we talked about a couple of sermons ago, effectuated? How, is, how does it become effective uh, for our salvation? Luke 8, if you'd like to turn there, we're going to camp out in Luke for a moment. So if you go to Luke 8, 4 through 15, you guys will recognize this parable quickly. Now, when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. 
The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the sky ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and when it came up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And yet another seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as much. As he said these things, he would call out, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now his disciples began asking him what this parable meant. And he said to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Remember us talking about the kingdom of God and how many references were in the New Testament about the kingdom of God. But to the rest, they are told in parables so that while seeing, they may not see and while hearing, they may not understand. Now, this is the parable. Jesus starts explaining those elements of the parable. Now, this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are the ones who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are the, are the ones who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And yet these do not have a firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked by worries, riches, and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word, with a good and virtuous heart and hold it firmly and produce fruit with perseverance. Perseverance. I always say that word incorrectly. Forgive me. Perseverance. So a little bit of a cartoon here for you. Casting of the seed. Throwing the seed out into the ground. Some of this seed falls on tough ground. It's not even absorbed. The birds come and carry it off. Um, doesn't have a good scarecrow, right? The birds come and take it away. Um, then also the rocky soil uh, might be at first received, but can't grow to maturity because of the environment that it's in is the same way with the thorns. But then there is the seed that is thrown on the good soil. So question to you, who makes the soil good? And how does he do it? Right? We talked about the effective call, the effectual call. Right? The effectual call, as opposed to the external call, is one that the Lord 
makes his message effective in the hearts of men and women to believe in him, to have faith and to repent for their conversion. So as Paul is talking about the word of God, and we've talked about the effectual um, hearing or the effectual call of God, you can see that some seed is shared on which does not grow. Um, the plants do not grow from the seed. So why did the Thessalonians accept the word? They accepted the word because the Holy Spirit so moved and regenerated them that they were able to respond in faith and repentance. The Holy Spirit enabled faith and repentance through their regeneration. The Thessalonian church remained faithful even in spite of persecution. The word of God established an entire church um, with the through the message of Paul. Um, I've referred to F.F. F. Bruce a couple of times, wonderful commenter, very detailed, very, it's very dense, um, but totally, totally a great commenter here to break this down. And he said, the Thessalonians persecution lasted a long time, and so did their steadfastness. Some six years later, Paul can still speak of the churches. Of Macedonia, and he does so in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Remember Macedonia? It's where Philippi is. It is where Thessalonica is. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So Paul recognizes the Thessalonians' receipt of the word and later pushing the timeline forward six years later in second Corinthians commends the churches of Macedonia for their steadfastness, even in an environment of persecution. This continues what I started previously on talking about the order of salvation. So now Paul is going a little bit further in what we can talk about there. He's talking about being born again, being regenerate, and being converted, right? Receipt of the word because of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. John 1, 13 says, 
This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not accept him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. So the rebirth, Jesus tells Nicodemus, right? that he must be reborn. And Nicodemus is very confused, uh, but we must be reborn. Um, and this is what he tells Nicodemus. Jesus responded and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the spirit. Jesus says, you must be born again. Jesus says, you must be regenerate. There must be a new creation within you to walk into the kingdom of God. So the word of God in its proclamation and we talked about that being the means of what God uses for his calling, right? We talked about the calling. The word of God has called the Thessalonians into his kingdom where they steadfastly not only accept the word and live their lives worthy of their calling, but also start to spread the gospel in their own right. As I, as I said previously, Thessalonica is logistically a wonderful place for Paul to have gone with the gospel because it's a port and it's right on the main road of the Romans. Right? So it can spread the gospel to really the ends of everything surrounding the Mediterranean. Okay, so continuing in verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So who are the churches in Judea? Why would they be significant. The churches in Judea sprang from the church in Jerusalem, where this all began, right? The church in Jerusalem is seen to be kind of the mother church, if you will. It is where who 
becomes the overseer pop quiz. Please tell me you know this. Thank you, James. Okay, James. James becomes the overseer of the church at Jerusalem. And his BFF, Peter, also hangs out there a lot of the time. <clears throat> so they had been persecuted. These churches had been persecuted because this is right in the thick of things. It's no, it's no mystery to us that Jerusalem is at the center of a lot of conflicts and has been for millennia, right? It is right now. This promised land <clears throat> has been the subject of wars in the Crusades throughout history. Maybe I would pick Richard's brain here and just have him lay out the whole history of how much this land has been fought over through, through the history of, of time. But that's going on during Paul's era as well. <clears throat> So even beginning with the stoning of Stephen, at which who was present? Paul. Paul or Saul at that time, rightly pointed out by Daniel, that <clears throat> Paul was right there standing, observing, and participating in the stoning of Stephen. That was some of the beginnings of this really horrible persecution of the church. Paul, as a zealot, went and drug people out of churches and had them put into prison or killed. And from that time forward, there was a great persecution of the church, churches in Judea. And as a result, materially, they always need help. That's why Paul starts the Jerusalem church fund, if you will, that he goes through and makes collections of and um, supports them. And we read about in Galatians where that was a promise that he made to James and Peter, right? So these churches had great poverty and opposition. So when Paul says to the Thessalonians, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. What are they replicating? They're replicating that ability to stay faithful to God throughout this time of unrest and persecution that the Thessalonians face as well. Now, completing verse 14 and coming into 15, <laughs> It says, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your country, own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all people. So... The Jews that killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Why does he say that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets? By the way, this is the only time in Paul's letters that he does this to say specifically that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus. 
Yes. So who, um, what party of the Jews? Yes. So John 3, 3 through 8, if you want to turn with me to John, I know that I'm jumping around to cross-references this morning, but if you want to read with me, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were trying to find a way to put him to death since they were afraid of the people. So get the identification of what part of the Jews wanted to kill Jesus and killed Jesus. Primarily, this was led by the chief priests and the scribes. And it says here that they were trying to find a way to put him to death. Look at their motivation. Since they were afraid of the people. What did we talk about just a few sermons ago? That Paul was more concerned about the will of God than he was about other people. And this is the direct opposite. Continuing in, um, excuse me, I forgot to put the reference here, but continuing, it says, then, because I, this is slide copying. This is PowerPoint 101, excuse me. Sorry, oh, oh, we and John, because the reference up there, it, it, it's not lining up, that's why I was asking. I, I may, I, I'm sorry, my reference is, my, uh, Verses didn't get copied correctly on the reference. I'm sorry. It's okay, but I, I just want to make sure I... Yeah, my bad. No, okay. keep me straight. Keep me honest here. So I promise you this is in the Bible, though. <laughs> okay? Uh, forgive me. I will give you the correct references. Continuing. <clears throat> then one of the 12, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said... What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they set out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Again, co-conspirator Judas Iscariot um, went to the chief priests. And they set out for him 30 pieces of silver. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? 30 pieces of silver is all it took to betray the Son of God. And from then on, he looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, am I straightened out? Keep me, keep me honest, Richard. Matthew 26 is this 63 through 65 of Matthew 26? Looks good, bro. Okay, okay, got the green light. Forgive me, church. I definitely do not mean to put incorrect references. Matthew 26, 63 through 65. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I place you under oath by the living God to tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and says, "He has and said he has blasphemed." What further need do we have of witnesses? See, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, "He deserves death." So this starts with the chief priests and scribes, and they incite the crowd into this mob mentality, right, to kill Jesus. They even had another chance we read about in Mark 15, 6 through 15. See, also, this is why we need to bring our Bibles to church. Hold the pastor accountable for him <laughs> rightly dividing, right? Mark 15, 6 through 15. Now at the Passover feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner who they requested. And the one named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder in the revolt. And the crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate was ready to give Jesus a get-out-of-jail-free card here. Verse 10, For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Even Pilate knew the motivations behind this group of people. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And responding again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the morning, more, Crucify him. Intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. After having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The motivations of the flesh that led to the Lord Jesus' death, envy, fear of other people, wanting to please other people, money and greed. You see how all of this preached about by the Lord come into fruition to cause his death. So very qualified by scripture, we can go back and forensically say, why would Paul say that the Jews, perhaps too generalized, right? Because he's calling out a group of people, which is a little bit ironic because what is Paul? A Jew. a Jew, right? So obviously he's pointing towards those certain Jews. Not, his, of course, his brothers that are traveling with him, which are all Jewish. <laughs> um, nor to those people that have been converted inside of the churches at Thessalonica, at Philippi, at Athens, and at Corinth, right? So he does say that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. What about the prophets? 
Interestingly enough, um, and I appreciate Jesse's help as well, um, I looked for biblical references to that outline the death of prophets. There aren't many, to be honest with you. Um, prophets being killed, that is. We know it happened, um, but we don't necessarily get directly those instances of how they were killed. Perhaps you could look at the death of Stephen as one of God's apostles being killed. And we certainly have the account of that and him being stoned. And there are all kinds of traditional sources, but they are extra biblical. For instance, we talked about Manasseh this morning briefly in the Bible study. Um, it is, uh, it is, traditionally thought that Manasseh had Isaiah sawn in two, but that's not in the Bible, okay? So there are lots of extra biblical sources like Fox's Book of Martyrs, like The Life of the Prophets, which is another book, and they talk about those things, but I did want to stick with scripture on this one. One thing that that scripture does give about uh, about how the prophets and in general the people of God were treated is in Hebrews chapter 11 32 through 38 and what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon Barak Samson Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms performed acts of righteousness obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, remember Daniel, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. People of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts, on mountains, and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. Now, because we've studied Old Testament history, we can identify a lot with a lot of those things that happened, right? We, we saw, for instance, when it talks about a, a child being returned by resurrection, that is something that happened with um, Elisha. When we talk about something that... Um, where they were in chains and imprisonment. Certainly we've seen that with Paul. Um, so allusion to the prophets and the persecution that they faced. We know also historically that all of the Lord's apostles sparing John uh, were martyred. Paul ends up beheaded. Spoiler alert. All of this ministry all of this calling by God, all of, all of that, he gets beheaded. Peter gets crucified upside down. 
John the Baptist. So all of these prophets, all of these speakers of the word, it's certainly not wealth and health type of stuff, is it? They are doing it in spite of being persecuted, killed, imprisoned, every manner of thing that could have happened. So Second Chronicles does have an example of one of the prophets of God. This is one of them that I could find. Second Chronicles 24, 20 through 21. Then the Spirit of God covered Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest like clothing. And he stood above the people and said to them, This is what God has said. Why do you break the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have abandoned the Lord, he has abandoned you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the house of the Lord. Well, welcome, preacher. Here's your, here's your welcome committee, right? Yeah. Because why? He spoke the word of God and was convict and was convicting them. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to hear it. So they immediately got rid of him. So the world does not welcome those that speak the word of God. That is historically true and it is presently true. And it will be continued to be true in the future until the Lord comes back. The world does not welcome those who speak the word of God. They're motivated the same way as the chief priests, that Pilate, that Judas were motivated through envy, greed, fear, and exposure. They don't want to be exposed for what they're doing wrong. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes and speaks the truth and his head ends up on a plate. And when they reject the Lord's word, they are also rejecting Jesus. When he comes into, when he comes into places like Philippi and shares and those reject him, they're rejecting the words of Paul, of Timothy, of Silas, but they are rejecting the person of Jesus. So that's what I'm trying to tie together here. The person of the word of God and the message of the word of God are one and the same. John 3, 16 through 21, for God so loved the world. We know all this, right? Mm -hmm. Football players have this on their shoes, even they know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world would be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil 
hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. Very clear why people reject the word of God. They reject the light. So continuing on here, verse 16, not only did the Jews historically kill the Lord Jesus and the prophets and are hostile to all people, but they're actually hindering them from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And we see this in Acts 13. Um, here's an example of where Paul uh, and Barnabas are speaking in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have appointed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. What do you think happened when they said we are turning to the Gentiles? Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So all who had been enlivened, all who had been appointed to eternal life believed when that word was received, right? And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. How dare they offer hope and love and joy and peace in Jesus? <laughs> we can't have that. We can't lose our chokehold on being the most religious people here, right? How terrible. Um, they actively sought to run them out of where they were preaching. They had them imprisoned, had them killed. It, it happens as a pattern. Lastly, let's talk about this last part of 16, with the result that they always reach the limit of their sins, but wrath has come upon them fully. How damning of Paul to say, wrath has come upon them. But is it true? Is it true? So in the last part of what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to present to you that wrath has a present and a future implication. Wrath is not just eternity in hell. Wrath takes place in the present as well. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yeah. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Therefore, what happened? God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Wrath is connected to God giving them over into their impurity. Wrath is also connected in another way, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I think that we have seen some wrath poured out by God in our generation because we recognize these traits, don't we? Perhaps even in ourselves, at one point, we could point back and say, I recognize these traits to my life without Christ. That I just follow, I just followed any kind of lusts that I had. I just went out and did whatever I wanted to because that was the way that I saw uh, that that I wanted to do. And the scary part is God giving them up to a totally depraved mind. The opposite of the renewal of the mind that is a move towards sanctification and holiness is this giving over to a depraved mind that seeks only to do what someone wants to do in their flesh. So present implications of God's wrath, but also future implications of God's wrath is poured out against those that were against his church. Mark 9, 47 through 48, if somebody ever tells you there's not a hell, first of all, they're in big trouble. But second of all, it's right here in the word. Do a word search. You know, it's it's so lazy to say something is not true when you've not even tried to find out about it. And if your eye is causing you to sin... Jesus says, throw it away. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. Future implications of a life of sin without regeneration is this place of hell. And what happens in Revelation 20 ultimately if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So a life of sin has both present wrath 
as a snowball and eternal wrath in the lake of fire. Those don't sound like a life that I want to live, nor does it sound like an eternity that I want myself or any of my loved ones to have. So our responsibility is to carry this word of God that he is going to use as the means of preaching into people's lives. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This double-edged sword we saw with Josiah this morning. What happened when Josiah read the book of the law? He was so convicted, he just tore his clothes apart. What happened when he read the book of the covenant? It drew him into a deeper relationship with God and making a commitment to walk with him. God's word is living and active. Those that are his respond with faith and repentance and seeking holiness. We're learning all about that in our sanctification book, right? The act of seeking of holiness. Those that reject the gospel not only reject it individually, but many times will react with hostility towards those that proclaim it. So it's not just a, eh, not for me. It is also active hostility towards the gospel. And lastly, the wrath of God has both present and future implications, just like the love of God and the acceptance of the word of God has present and future implications, right? So with all of those things said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord, that shared with the Thessalonians, enlivened them to live lives towards you. Father, and does that today, Father, to enliven us. Father, please help us to walk with you more closely. Help us to repent of sin and trust in you and desire holiness desire purity and a closer walk with you. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.